Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Question and answers. At this time, I'd like to introduce the Apollo 11 crew, astronauts Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, Edwin Aldrin. Neil? It was our pleasure to have participated in one great adventure. It's an adventure that took place not just in the month of July, but rather one that took place in the last decade. We all here and the people listening in today had the opportunity to share that adventure over its developing and unfolding in the past months and years. It's our privilege today to share with you some of the details of that final month of July that was certainly the highlight for the three of us of, of that decade. We're going to divert a little bit from the format of past press conferences and talk about the things that interested us most, in particular the the uh, things that occurred on and about the moon. We will use a number of films and and slides which most of you have already seen, and with the intent of, of pointing out some of the things that we observed on the, the spot, which may not be obvious to to those of you who are, who are uh, looking at them here from the surf surface of Earth. The, the flight, as you know, started promptly. And I think that was characteristic of, of all the events of the flight. The Saturn gave us one magnificent ride. Both into Earth orbit and on a trajectory to the moon. Our, our memory of, of that actually differs little from the reports that you have all heard from the from those previous Saturn V flights and and those the, the previous flights served as well in preparation for this flight in, in the boost as well as the, the subsequent phases. We would like to, to skip directly to 
the translunar coast phase. And we can now say with moral certainty and considerable scientific authority that the death of JFK was committed by a meticulously executed conspiracy which was obscured by an extensive cover-up. Cover Murder in Dealey Plaza, edited by James Fetzer, goes to the heart of the JFK assassination. You'll read new and up-to-date information regarding the Secret Service, the Lincoln limousine, the medical evidence, the cover-up, altering the film, framing the patsy, and the silent historians. Also, 16 smoking guns, each one crushing the government's lone assassin scenario. A world-class chronology of November 22nd, 1963. Chapters by David W. Mantic, Gary Aguilar, Vincent Palomara, Douglas Weldon, Jack White, Ira David Wood III, James H. Fetzer, Doug Horn, and a classic essay by Bertrand Russell. The complete story in the pages of one single book, edited by James H. Fetzer. Read it now. Read it again. You'll use it as a reference. Murder in Dealey Plaza. Available at Amazon.com and major bookstores around the world. It's murder. Less than 3% of you people read books. Because less than 15% of you read newspapers. Right now, there is a whole, an entire generation that never knew anything that didn't come out of his book. This group can make or break presidents, popes, prime ministers, television. It's not the truth. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, liars, famous, and football players. We do it in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. <laughs> Jim Fetzer, your host on the Real Deal. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. It looks like one of those scenes of an old building being purposely dynamited and blown. When we are successful. I'm just a patsy. We're ready to make uh, come to the microphone, so we'll listen up. A new world order. My name's Robbie Parker. It might have appeared that way, but from my close-up inspection, there's no evidence of a plane having crashed anywhere near the Pentagon. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Live from the media broadcasting center. 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 This is Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal. It's my very great pleasure to have as a repeat guest, a return guest, an expert in the area of cinematography. He's been called by Wired Magazine an authority on the hermetic and alchemical traditions 
an erudite conspiracy hunter. He, his name is Jay Wiedner. He's a renowned author, filmmaker, and scholar, considered to be a modern-day Indiana Jones. He has uh, been the director of the powerful and insightful documentaries Kubrick's Odyssey, Infinity, The Ultimate Trip, and the forthcoming feature film Shasta, and the producer of the popular documentary films 2012, The Odyssey, and its sequel, Time Wave 2013. Jay Wiedner, welcome to The Real Deal. Hey, it's good to be back, Jim. <laughs> oh, it's so good to have you there after the technical glitches we've been going through. Jay, Jay, tell us, tell us, tell us. How did you get involved in this? What was your first clue that something was wrong with uh, the, the, the moon landing film footage? Well, it actually started, um, uh, it started in 1992 when I went out to uh, both Ames and Houston, NASA uh, research places, uh, to look at their archives with a, a researcher named Richard Hoagland, who invited me along because I was a photographic expert. And um, I began looking at all of the photographs. I mean, the, the, the first generation 70-millimeter uh, ectochrome slides. Uh, not first generation. They're probably second generation. Hopefully they wouldn't be releasing the first generation uh, on uh, in their archives. They'd have that tucked away in a freezer somewhere. But, you know, I was looking at very close to first generation. And um, I just kept noticing just things that just bugged me, you know, as a, as a photographer, a cinematographer. It just bugged me. And I could never tell what it was. It was nagging at me all the time. What was it about these photographs that just didn't seem right? And I would get in long arguments. And, and I would also discover people at NASA. I would take them out to lunch and talk to them. And I'd ask them if they thought there was anything weird about the photographs. And occasionally I would get, you know, yeah, you know, there is something odd about those photographs. They just don't look right. And anyway... All of that was uh, in my mind as I was researching um, the high strangeness around the Apollo landings, uh, thinking that they really did happen, but that, you know, maybe the astronauts had discovered ancient artifacts or something on the moon and they were trying to hide it as a secret. In other words, Richard Hogan's point of view. But I was always a part of me, again, nagging at me that this wasn't quite right. Something was wrong. Anyway, it all led up to the purchase of the DVD for the film 2001 A Space Odyssey, my very favorite film of all time, um, in, in the year 2001, actually, was when it came out. And uh, I put it on my TV and uh, got some popcorn and uh, sat down, and uh, uh, my wife was gone, so I had the whole house to myself, and uh, I sat and I started watching the film. And the first part of the film, of course, is the ape sequence, and I knew that it had been filmed with front screen projection. I'd always marveled at Kubrick's amazing ability to capture the apes looking like they're out in the desert when really it was filmed on a soundstage. And so I always loved the, the ape scenes in 2001 for that matter. But as I was watching the ape scenes this time on a very clear DVD, I began to notice that I could see artifacts in the sky, i.e. the screen that was around the apes. And so after the movie was finished, I grabbed the DVD and I put it up on my uh, Apple Final Cut and I began uh, messing with it, doing kind of the same things that Richard Hoagland was doing with the Apollo photographs, uh, upping the gamma, increasing the contrast, 
Uh, and when he would do that, he would get all these odd geometries and lines and crisscrossing patterns in the skies above the, the astronauts. It always baffled us. And this was the main evidence that he had for that NASA was hide, hiding ancient alien cities that were, you know, 20 miles high, because they would have to be to, to uh, be the highest they are in these photographs. But I noticed that the same exact patterns were in the um, in the in the film 2001: Space Odyssey, the eight scenes, and it was like the light went on. I realized I had it. Um, I figured it out. Then I began really examining the Apollo photographs and Kubrick's footage and other films of uh, projection footage. Um, and I began, yeah, you know, as you know, you become what 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 happens in research is the pattern recognition. Of course, is the highest form of. Uh, of intelligence, really, and, and good researchers have a high uh, ability for pattern recognition, and I just began recognizing the pattern. Then pretty soon, it, you know, it became laughable. I mean, I would, by 2004, I, I, would, I would giggle when I would see Apollo photographs on, on TV and stuff. And then, you know, I, I, I purchased all the videos, and I have the entire video collection of all the Apollo videos, which are absolutely appalling, by the way. Um, the, the photographs at least look good. The video is uh, grainy, scratchy, out of focus, and apparently it's all lost now. So they never have to worry about giving us any, any you know, we, fear. We've had studies say the world's most precious footage were in authentic have somehow been mysteriously lost by NASA. Yeah, and it's 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 very odd what the what's going on, and of course we know what's going on. And anyway, that's how I, I discovered it. I, I didn't come out with it in 2001 like maybe I should have, uh, mainly to protect my good friend Richard Hoagland's reputation. I didn't want to hurt him uh, because I knew this was going to really you know put a gash in his side, and I didn't want to do that. But at the same time, I wanted the truth to come out, and. Um, Began seeing what happened was was the uh, Fox came out with this documentary about the Apollo moon landings being hoaxed, which was one of their biggest hits of all time, and um, so what, which we just saw, had, which we just saw in the first hour, of course. Continue. Oh, great! That's a fantastic. Yes, I saw it in London. Oh. My wife and I were staying in a hotel there. And I think it actually was 2001. I couldn't believe the BBC on one of its channels was showing this, and I was just completely in the grip of it. You know, so many of the articles uh, are, scientific, are scientific. My background is as a philosopher of science. I was just in, enthralled by the entire production. Yeah, well, the guy that did that, he's the author of the book Dark Moon. He's featured heavily in the interview sections of that uh, doc. And uh, he's... Uh, he's a filmmaker, like I am. And, you know, there he was, you know, glaringly obvious that, you know, what was going on. His moon, his book, Dark Moon, had been severely suppressed in this country. Um, but I recommend, you, you, if people get it, it's very well documented. And his background research on Werner von Braun and uh, Herman Oritz and, and the entire early NASA guys, it's killer. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, Herman, I'm going to forget his last name now. He was the, the mentor for for uh, Werner von Braun. Herman Orvitz or Orbitz. I can't remember his name. He's a Yugoslavian. Anyway, 
he actually worked on uh, Fritz Lang's movie about a trip to the moon. And it was actually, he designed the sets. This is a, a 1920s... Science fiction film, right? Yeah, but it was like the first marriage of rocket science and filmmakers. Yeah. And, 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 and Kubrick worshipped Fritz Lang, right? And, and, and you can know why, because Fritz Lang was working with these guys, trying to recreate this stuff. This, this, this silent film was so, um, so uh, uh, convincing that Adolf Hitler watched it, thought it was real, and signed off on the whole Panamunde rocket program. On a film that wasn't real, with special effects. <laughs> I mean, this this fraud has been going on for so long. I mean, now, Jay, so, just, uh, back, many, yeah, go, yeah, yeah. just to back up a moment, uh, many of our audience may not understand the principles of front screen projection. If you could just briefly sketch them, and where one yeah, of the telling yeah. signs is that the, the what what is in the distance is just as well defined as what is in the foreground. Exactly, that's the key, of course. And that's what bugged me about the uh, NASA footage. Without always so... your finger on it, yeah. Yeah, I was like, wow, how can they get all this incredible depth of field where, you know, the mountains are in focus, the astronauts are in focus, the grains of sand on the ground by the feet are in focus. It just always was blowing my mind. And, uh, you know, especially for guys that did not know photography very well and who could not look through their lens. They just were clicking. At all. They couldn't even see what they were doing. I know. That's right. Anyway, that's right. These cameras were mounted yeah. on their suits. They couldn't actually frame them, and yet every photograph we have in this set is perfectly framed, perfectly in focus. Yeah. I mean, it's absurd on its face that that should be the case. Well, it is. In fact, it looks like a professional photographer shot him. Someone who might have been a photographer <laughs> for this magazine when they were like 17 that. years old. I say yeah. the best explanation of a film of photographs looking like a professional photographer shot him is that a professional photographer shot him. That's kind of what I was. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so, uh, you know, as, as, as I got into this, and, you know, then I, I began, so front screen projection, let's do that first. So front screen projection is the uh, cure for a very long used technique in film called rear screen projection. And rear screen projection would be projecting the image onto a screen from a projector, like a movie projector, and then filming it from in front of that perpendicular to the screen. So a lot of the scenes in movies where people are driving cars and you see the city going by in the background between the people sitting in the seats, it always looks kind of phony and weird. That's because that's a rear screen projection. And the reason that it looks kind of phony and weird is because the camera is shooting first generation are the actors in front. And then the second generation is the film which is being projected. So you have a problem where the film is about a half a stop lower than the actors in front because it's, it's being um, doubled. In other words, when you, when you film film, it gets darker as you film. So that was the reason. So what front screen projection uh, solved was it split the beam with the mirror. And the beam, one half of the beam hit the camera, and the other half of the beam hit the uh, uh, screen. And so you had this equal light, 
the actors and the uh, screen were of equal value so that it looked completely real. And then that was the key. And the front screen projection had been used before in movies. Kubrick did not invent it, but there's no doubt that Kubrick and uh, Douglas Trumbull perfected uh, front screen projection to the point where it was being frequently used forever after until blue screen was discovered. Well, I'm looking right now at a couple of your images from the early parts of uh, 2001 ape scene where you've drawn a line as to where the division is between the, uh, you know, the, 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 the front screen and the back, uh, as it were. The set and the screen. The set and the screen, exactly. That's yeah. right. And, yeah. uh, you know, it became so obvious to you from looking at enough of this, I'm sure you could draw the lines almost in your sleep. Well, I can, and, 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 and you know, I can't even, I can't watch anything that has anything to do with Apollo anymore. But it just, just, it's I just so ridiculous. It, it really just, is. And, let me just remind our audience, they want to go online to Veterans Today to the article, Faking Moon Landings, the Parallax Experiments, which I, I published with, with uh, Jay's study of this and a lot of images, and uh, Chance is going to be showing a number of them. If uh, I can't tell if they're there right now or not, but you will be talking about this uh, by and by as we proceed. Jay, you know, uh, did it ever strike you that there was something preposterous about having any photographs or films from the moon at all anyway because cosmic rays ought to have destroyed the photographic uh, plates? Oh, absolutely. The whole idea of going through the Van Allen belts or even near the Van Allen belts. Yeah. Uh, the, the gamma rays pounding, the synchrotron radiation pounding the surface of the moon at high noon. Don't forget, we're at high noon here. Um, we're not on the dark side or on the twilight. All the missions were at high noon when the moon and the sun, sun was at its highest. If there had been and even NASA admits this. NASA admits a lot of things now that they wish that... I want to get to this in a second. But if, if, a, if a, a CME, a coronal, coronal mass ejection, had a, even a small one had occurred, they would have been fried. Their equipment would have been fried. Everything You're talking about a sun flare, a solar flare. Yes, a solar flare. And by the way, if you look at the solar flare charts, there were quite a number of them during the missions. So that's also somewhat questionable as to why they were up there during such a, an active period. But here's the thing that really kind of pisses me off, Jim, and that is this. What they have done in order to just make a bunch of money, because I can't figure out any other reason for the faking of this outside of propaganda reasons, but let's just say that they stole the $40 billion or they put it into the secret space program or whatever they did with it, right? What they did was they perverted science forever. Until we expose this, yes. they have perverted science. And that's the crime, the major crime. In the universities right now, people are learning false science. And we, it, that's the real crime right here because that's yeah. going to distort the scientific process oh. from here on out. Yeah, yeah, having to perpetuate a lie. It's like uh, after I think it was Neil Armstrong said they couldn't see any any stars in the sky, uh, they had to continue to perpetuate that lie, which is just as blatant as can be. They they wouldn't be twinkling, but there would be billions of them. The stars would have been, you know, a sensational experience. And, you know, and why didn't they? 
why didn't they photograph the stars? Yeah, of course, because they weren't in a position. <laughs> exactly. You could triangulate it to find out exactly where they were. <laughs> You know, you, you get the uh, space launches, you get photos of the heavens uh, or from the Hubble and all that, and they're spectacular. Well, it would have been equally spectacular from the surface of the moon, which isn't affected by any atmosphere. So it wouldn't have caused any kind of diffraction or, or dis distribution of the light. But there would have been points of light, just billions of them, that would have been sensational. And yet every astronaut has had to carry the burden of denying that they could see any stars that they haven't. Jay, that's just so insulting. Oh, it's not only insulting, the, um, the, the very spacecraft themselves are guided by cameras that are photographing the stars so they can triangulate how to get there. Beautiful, yes, of course. <laughs> That's, of course, correct. That's right. Uh, but, but isn't it just gross that there actually, if we'd been to the moon, there wouldn't be any photographs or footage at all because of the role of cosmic rays? Highly unlikely that the, the film would have uh, survived, nor the video cameras, which are quite sensitive in those days. And, um, with, you know, any kind of, even Apollo 12, they did lose the, uh, uh, conveniently lose the uh, video feed um, because Kubrick hadn't quite figured out how to make the effects. I want to say something else about Apollo, which is really important. Yes. If you watch, if you watch, let's say, The Lord of the Rings, any kind of long, uh, long, long-lasting production. I'm just talking about production here. We'll take uh, Walking Dead or any of the TV shows that are out there, right? If you start watching them from beginning to the end, you will notice, if you know production, that they're getting subtly better with every single show. The lighting is getting better. The sets are getting better. The acting is getting better. Everything is getting better. If you watch Lord of the Rings, you can see the special effects are spectacular by the last one. But the first one, they're kind of very just mediocre. And same thing with the acting in the story. By the last one, they're really going. But the first one, eh. And the same thing with the TV shows and things. And the same thing is true with the Apollo program. The production values go up with every mission. They get better with the sets. They get better with the costumes. They get better with the lighting. I mean, if you know production and you watch it, you can see that this is a progressive production. It is truly, that is one of the biggest um, fingerprints of all, if this is just all manipulation. Jay, it's just stunning. It's just stunning. And, of course, what photos we do have are just riddled with inconsistencies. You have shadows cast in more than direct one direction. You have light from more than one source. You have... Uh, dark, what areas should be dark or illuminated, even though the light source is opposite the, what you're viewing. I mean, if you have reflections in the, in the space helmets, the visors that, that contradict what is supposed to be going on there. You have the moon rover with no tracks in front of it, no tracks behind it, having been lowered down by a crane. I mean, it goes on and on and on, Jay. It's just embarrassing as it can be once you begin to notice these things. Yes, this is the thing, is that somehow it, go, it has gotten by getting noticed. And that is because uh, people who understand production have not been speaking out. I think they've been seeing it, but I don't think they've been speaking out. And I think that guy that did that Dr. Fox, 
he was a production guy and he spoke out. I'm a production guy who spoke out. And I think we need to get more of us who actually understand the techniques of how to fake this stuff to talk because that's how we're going to expose it more and more. We're now, what's great about what's going on now, and you're uh, one of the main reasons this is going on, is we have like an army or a cadre of uh, researchers which are willing to like leap right in immediately and begin examining every aspect of everything that's going on. And, you know, I, I think that what happened was, was that first my research came out, we've, we've all been kind of leading towards this idea that this thing was, this fakery was bigger than we ever thought. And I think, you know, I'm not taking a big credit for it, but I think in 2009 when I came out with this stuff, um, that opened the door at Creek. And then I think Sandy Hook kicked the door wide open when everybody was, went, whoa, you know, this is the phoniest thing I've ever seen. And, um, and, I, and I think that we're in this incredibly weird place right now where we as a community are beginning to realize that they are pulling the wool over our eyes almost on a continuous basis and almost everything that they're doing is false. And um, we have to find a way to articulate this to the larger crowd because it's, it's absolutely insidious and it has to stop. Well, you know, I've done a couple of interviews with Nathan Folks, who is the Hollywood producer-director who recognized uh, uh, in, the, in the Boston bombing scene, playing a key role, running along beside who's supposed to be Jeff Bauman in a wheelchair, holding a, a rag too loosely to actually function as a tourniquet in one of his own films. And that what they were doing was known as hyper-realistic filming, where you try to make a scene as realistic as possible for the benefit, for example, of inexperienced troops as to what they might experience in combat. But would you believe, Jay, we have a, a video of the marathon where you can hear the police on a bullhorn in the background saying, this is a drill, this is a drill. Would you believe we have tweets from the Boston Globe where one tweet says there's going to be a demonstration bomb set off during the Boston Marathon. The next tweet says it's going to be set off in one minute in front of the library for the benefit of bomb squad activities. And by God, one minute later, it's set off and across the street is the Boston Public Library. And we have all these footage, you know, after this puffery has gone off. And I'm a former artillery officer in the Marine Corps. It was obvious to me this was not a, a real explosive. And you got these uh, persons, these bodies on the ground. And, and, you know, there's a guy in a hood who's trying to assist the, the Jeff Bauman guy who allegedly just had his lower part of his legs blown off. But there's no blood gushing. There's no blood present. He's, att he's attempting to attach a false prosthesis with a bone extension to make it more emotionally horrifying. The blood only shows up later, and it's not real blood. It's Hollywood blood. In fact, you can find in the debris later tubes from which the blood came, Jay, and as you well know, it's reddish-orange blood that doesn't change color. Of course not. And also, um, if you Google image Jeff Bauman, um, I swear um, there's only one image of him with his legs, which you really don't see the legs. He's holding a sign um, between his torso and his upper legs. So we don't even know if he's wearing fake legs there in that photo. So how come nobody who knew this hero, Jeff Bauman, you know, people who may have shot hoops with him or went hiking with him or whatever, they got Facebook photos and whatever. Well, how come they're not up? How come nobody's celebrating their relationship with this guy back when he had his legs? It's totally weird. 
And 17 days later, he's in a Boston Bruins game, and now he's looking as can be, but his legs are now amputated above the knee rather than below the knee. I had a (laughs) great conversation with Dr. Stan Monteith when he was still with us. He was an orthopedic. Oh, yeah, he was a great guy. Orthopedic surgeon who performed these kinds of amputations. He said it takes months to recover from the amputation, and then months more to learn how to get around physically without your legs. And this fellow being there in 70 days, he said, I'm sorry, he said, but I have to conclude this young man is an actor. And, of course, what we have is a whole host of amputee actors. I mean, it's outrageous. Uh, Yeah, but we're nipping at their heels, man. So uh, um, they're going to have to be more careful. They they didn't even confirm the footage that shows Steven Spielberg on the scene. In other words, it wasn't announced as a Steven Spielberg production, but it appears to have been one. Go to my article. Well, there certainly, there was a guy there that looked just like Steven Spielberg. <laughs> just like him. And nobody looks more just like him than the man himself. <laughs> Did I say it? You so playing a doctor. You go to this wonderful article, yes, entitled Media Complicit and Indispensable to False Flag Success. And you'll see an expose about Sandy Hook, uh, the Boston bombing, and Charlie Hebdo, all of which were phony as could be once you get the pieces together. And would you believe, Jay, we've even found in relation to Sandy Hook the FEMA manual for the event that shows they had a rehearsal on the 13th and then we're going live on the 14th, which explains a whole host of anomalies. You'll remember the interview with Gene Rosen where there's a sign in the back, a portable sign that says everyone must check in. It, it says right in the yep. manual, everyone must check in. Wolfgang Helbig, is a retired Florida state trooper and a school safety expert, has been trying to get information about the porta potties. Ridiculous to think they'd be brought to a school massacre. But for a rehearsal, that's why they can't give him the information, which show they were there on the 13th, not the 14th, the day of the shooting. And then we have Adam Lanza's deaths recorded in the Social Security Death Index on the 13th, not the 14th. He got confused because there were two dates, Jay, and they weren't smart enough to keep them straight. Well, they're government workers, you know. They're not. Who's good for government? It's so completely ridiculous. The school was abandoned by 2008. We have footage inside and out. It was being used for storage. It's not compliant with the Americans for Disability Act. The parking areas aren't in blue and white. No signage. You got wooden uh, stairway, uh, wheelchair inaccessible with a piece of pipe sticking out. The, The school was in deplorable condition. I mean, we have just proven this so many ways, it's unbelievable. There was no evacuation, Jay. We have dash cam footage at the same locations and times that the police claim the, ex- the, 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 the evacuation was taking place, and there's no one there, no one there. And then we have that, that classic, iconic photograph of like 15 students being led up by a policewoman. Uh, well, it turns out there was a second photograph taken from further back, and there are half a dozen parents there with their arms folded watching while the policewoman rearranges the children in the line to get a better shot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know. I mean, the fraud, the fraud the government is perpetrating, but none, Jay, are quite on the level or scale of these, this Apollo thing. It's just the biggest hoax ever. Well, yeah, because they made $40 billion in 1960s money, which would be about $400 billion now. So, yeah, that was the big scam there. They're only getting a trickle in uh, Sandy Hook compared to this. But, yeah, and, you know, so, you know, the whole thing about Apollo is 
that it has perverted science. And that's what we have to really kind of um, emphasize because, yeah, and, and that's why I've come forward, not because I want to expose. Let, let me give you two illustrations of why, you know, science is so important. I mean, in classical physics, Newton's laws, everyone learns it even in high school. But we have this video footage of what's supposed to be Flight 175 approaching this massive 500,000-ton building. It's actually intersecting with eight different floors, Jay, each of which is a steel truss connected one end to the core columns, the other to the external steel support columns, filled with four to eight inches of concrete. So since the building's 208 feet on the side, each of them represents an acre of concrete. Would you believe the plane just effortlessly disappears into the building? We've done frame-by-frame like analysis. Butter. Frame, frame by frame analysis, Jay, and, and, it, and it, it disappears its whole length into the building in the same number of frames it passes through its whole length in air. That's exactly right. I've done that examination. <laughs> it, loses, it, it faces no resistance as it goes into the building. Furthermore, no uh, furthermore, there's a 500 mile an hour wind going behind and shooting the opposite direction of the of the jet. So when it hits the, the building, all of the crap that's in that building is going to fly out that window and break all the windows. No, nope, nothing happens. Not, not one thing. If it had been a real plane, it would have crumpled up against the, the wall. Part of oh, it would yeah. have got in, but its wings, tail, body seats, luggage would have fallen to the ground. None of that happened. In fact, the heat from the friction would have been so great, it would have exploded external to the building. They had to fake it, Jay, because they needed to get the plane all the way into the building before it exploded to have a pseudo-explanation for the collapse. I'm with you. Which is no collapse at all. I mean, have you ever heard of a collapse, which is a gravity-driven phenomenon working in one direction only, where the building blows apart in every direction? That's no collapse. That's massive explosives at work. Exactly what I'm talking about. They have perverted science, and they now realize that they can change the law of physics at will, <laughs> do whatever they want, and we have to stop this as science. Well, now, I'm not a scientist. Americans are so gullible, Jay. I think they're convinced that Spider-Man actually can spin his web and Superman actually can fly. I mean, it's that bad. It is. It's and then you get an atrocity like Iron Man, which is even worse from the point of view of the principles of physics. I mean, you know, it's just unreal. Americans are so uncritical. They're so naive. They're so gullible, Jay. Now, that, that gullibility yep. makes Hollywood a lot of money, but it's a disaster for the country in terms of politics because it enables the government to manipulate situations to implant false beliefs in Americans so they'll support ridiculous scenarios like going to war in the Middle East and slaughtering all these Iraqis. I mean, we had no business being there in the first place. It was total manipulation. Oh, we did. oh yeah. Um, yeah, the, 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 we see the, the fruits of what they're doing. And But what's interesting also as an aside on Sandy Hook from a, a I don't want to wax metaphysical here, but the Mayans predicted in their calendar that there was going to be this great awakening on 12, 21, 12, all right? And all these new agers and everybody jumped on board. And um, one week before exactly on 12, 14, 12, Sandy Hook happened. And I would posit to you and to everyone listening that the awakening that they're talking about. I don't know how they knew about it, but the awakening was Sandy Hook. 
because Sandy Hook woke us up. Come on, man, you and I were both veterans in this stuff, and both of us are shocked by the manipulation being woven in Sandy Hook. It was like, what? I mean, a whole town, a whole town's involved, really? And, and, and they are, apparently. And so, you know, we now know what we're dealing with. That's, that is a good thing. That is a great thing to know. We know what they will do. We know what they will resort to. And Sandy Hook taught us all. They screwed up at Sandy Hook. They committed a bunch of really bad errors. And those errors woke up a lot of people, believe me. We didn't wake up. We were already awake. But I know a lot of people that woke up after Sandy Hook. And I think the Boston bombing is, if anything, even more blatant, Jay. And here you got a young man. Uh, Zoker Zarnoff, who's being tried, the question is going to be whether he's going to get life imprisonment or the death penalty when he had nothing to do with it. The whole thing was a drill. All the authorities know it was a drill. The police were on the bullhorn. The Boston Globe, for God's sake, was putting out these tweets. How can the Boston Globe, one of the world's great newspapers, be concealing all this when they were participants, Jay? Okay, there you go. Jim, that's it right there. There's the wake-up. When PBS brought out their frontline doc on Adam Lanza, we knew then that we could not depend on anybody in the media. They were all in on it. And, and now that's the wake-up. Get it? The wake-up is, wow, even PBS and Boston Globe, everybody's in on it. That's unbelievable. We knew from William Colby, its former director, that the CIA owned yes. everyone of significance in the major media. And, for example, leading up to the war in Iraq, they had CIA assets who were hyping, you know, Saddam Hussein having been involved in this, working on trying to get yellow cake to develop nukes, all this complete, uh, total rubbish, rubbish, right in the New York Times. I mean, Jay, it doesn't get any more disgusting than that. Well, they're the worst, Uh, completely working for the man. And, uh, uh, yeah, so, you know, this, this, all of this, Apollo is part what Apollo did was it gave them permission to go try these even more outlandish acts. And I think Stanley felt bad about this, and that's why he made the movie Eyes Wide Shut, be it a bad movie, which it is, but he was at least trying to expose the elites and what they do. And, um, and I think, you know, and also Full Metal Jacket, I think he was, he was trying to expose it there, too. And, 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 and Good. Eyes Wide Shut is the film that gave orgies a bad name. <laughs> that is a really awful film, you know, Jay. That's just an awful yeah. film, you know, that you got Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. I mean, how terrible. What a waste. And how much money well, was yelled out on that? I think, you know, Tom never really got over his charisma bypass operation. <laughs> You know, something I love when we talk about these revealing films is Capricorn 1. You know, a lot of people oh, really yeah. don't appreciate how, how much it was telling us about how these things can be done. You have a single TV feed, grainy footage, you can fake almost anything. Just exactly as was done with the, with the Apollo program. Well, yeah, it, it's a wonder why no one ever complains about the crappy footage that NASA has provided us. I mean, it is appalling. It is appalling. I mean, uh, Gilligan's Island is better, um, you know, quality. It's like, take TV shows from the same era. Yes, their production values yeah, exactly. are far superior. 
But don't you agree that was part of the idea, part of the mystique? Don't show them enough details, you know, then they'll think it's real. Uh, they can't tell the difference, you know, until we reach a point where we're actually able to tell the difference. And that's when all of a sudden all this, this historic footage disappears. Exactly. Well, right when they reach the end of their current production uh, capabilities, they ended the program. <laughs> Apollo 17 is the um, 2001 of the Apollo program. I mean, it's off awesome. It's got mountains behind it. It's got a big crater. Uh, somebody, one of the technicians even went and put like a, a skull or something down at the bottom of the crater. Richard Hoagland finds and thinks it's a, a robot's head, you know. I mean, this, it, what they were doing was you know, incredibly detailed and uh, um, pushed cinema technology to the point where they could do like the Superman movie in 1979, which they couldn't have done earlier. So yeah, yeah. Kubrick has to be credited with, uh, by, by 1972, he had really perfected this thing, although he didn't do it in 72. He was doing this all in the mid-60s. So he was pretty much done by 67 or so with anything to do with Apollo. He shot it all, and now he was messing with it in uh, post. So that's when he began adding grain and realizing that, you know, any filmmaker would see the fingerprints and realize that this is BS, and so he had to mess up the pictures, and, and that's when he began doing all that. Well, the benefit of those who want to go further, especially with regard to moon photographs and so forth, let me recommend a source. Winston Wu has his uh, trilogies, conspiracy trilogy series online. And it's part of the uh, first part is devoted to the Apollo moon landing. It's really stunning in the elaborate, the vast number of arguments he gives to show that this all appears to be a hoax. Jay, let me ask you this. Is there anyone in Hollywood who believes that we actually went to the moon? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I've never met anyone who would defend it, but I can tell you there are numerous references in, uh, in in movies to it being fake. Um, yeah. There's yeah. Uh, Peter Sellers in being there. Yeah. Uh, it, it, there's a scene in the middle of the film where he's walking down the street during a snowy day in Manhattan. Or no, it's not a snowy day. But it, it, and he looks through a shop window, and the music is playing the theme from 2001, but it's the jazz. Uh, a musician Diodato's um, version of the theme from 2001. And he looks down, and there are a bunch of toys on the ground in this uh, in the Macy's department store window in New York, and they're reenacting Apollo 11. No, oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, the Toy Story, Toy Story has Buzz Lightyear, who yeah. Um, yeah. is a yeah. toy that thinks he's a heroic astronaut, but all the other toys laugh at him because he's not. But, but he doesn't my believe that. Children have Buzz Lightyear. Very funny. Very oh yeah. Funny. Oh yeah. So, but but Buzz Lightyear discovers that he's really not an astronaut because he sees an ad for himself on TV. And then the movie, the saddest part of the movie, is Buzz Lightyear walks up to a banister uh, in the hallway, and the um, the wallpaper behind Buzz Lightyear is exactly the pattern that's in The Shining, which exactly emulates um, uh, Launchpad 39A, where Apollo 11 took off. 
Exactly. I mean, to the color, the pattern, they took it right from Kubrick's The Shining. And Buzz Lightyear stands on the podium or the banister, and he looks up through the window at the moon, and then he leaps to take off to go to the moon, and he falls to the ground, and he crashes, and he breaks. <laughs> tell, tell us more about The Shining, Jay, because I've heard several allusions to it. Uh, I, I must say I haven't studied it. I can't even recall if I actually saw it because I know it's got Jack Nicholson in kind of a, uh, an insane whatever. But, but tell, me, tell me something about it, how, it, how it's related to the moon landing hoax. Well, what it is is that what, what Kubrick did was um, he was very, very bored uh, in the 70s. He had made Barry Lyndon, which was his epic period piece, and he'd done 2001. He'd done Clockwork Orange's piece about mind control. And he was looking for something to do, but he also wanted to tell the story of what he had been through. And so he wanted to find a vehicle that would allow him to embed his autobiographical story into the script without anyone noticing that was in power who might kill him. And so he did that with The Shining. And I call The Shining as the faking of the making of the Stephen King novel uh, in order for Stanley to tell his own story. And it's not that odd for an artist as an artist, I can say this, it's not that odd for an artist to want to embed some autobiographical information into whatever project they're involved in. Uh, they think we all do it. Um, and so, uh, within the, so what I did was, again, I got some popcorn, I bought the DVD of The Shining, not because I liked it, because I actually don't like the film that much. I think it's kind of an odd and perverse film. I'm not sure why I don't like it. still don't like it. But anyway, I, I wanted to watch it because I just uncovered the Kubrick stuff in the, um, you know, the Apollo stuff, and I was investigating Stanley Kubrick, so I had to watch it as part of the research. So I sat down, I got my popcorn. Again, I was alone, which I think somehow is important in all this. And I started watching, and the film was boring and, um, uh, you know, going on and on and on. All of a sudden, there's this scene halfway through the film, one hour into the film, where Danny is sitting on an odd, geometrically designed carpet uh, playing with his toys. And the, trucks and, the that, and the trucks and toys he's playing with are right in the center of this odd um, hexagram geometry that's on this carpet that's repeated. And when I saw it, I, I said, wait a minute, where have I seen that before? And I immediately ran to my computer and I typed in... Um, Launchpad 39A because I've seen so much Apollo stuff that I just you know I just knew it, and there was a hexagonal, perfect, just exactly like the pattern on the rug that the kid was playing with his trucks, and the trucks looked like they were surrounding like a rocket, like you know you've seen Apollo photographs of the trucks and stuff feeding the fuel and everything into the rockets. So I'm like, what? What the hell? What's going on here? I've got the exact emulation of Launchpad 39A, and this kid is playing with trucks that look like, but where's the rocket? And then immediately we cut to the kid, whose name is Danny, standing up, and there, crudely sewn on his sweater, is a rocket launching, and the words, Apollo 11. And then Danny stands up, in other words, the rocket launches, and then he walks down the hallway 
towards where this ball that starts the scene came from, and he sees that room 237 is open. A room 237 is interesting because the uh, book by King, it's room 217, but for some inexplicable reason, Kubrick changed it to room 237. What's interesting about this is that at the time of the making of 2001 and Apollo, the, the scientifically agreed upon distant, mean distance of the Earth to the moon was 237,000 miles. As Danny, the kid, walks towards room 237, there's a key in the door that says, um, European style, um, RM room 237. If you do an anagram of RM and room, you come up with the words moon room. If so, and so what I'm positing here, it, and then later, when Shelley Duvall, Jack Nicholson's wife, and Jack Nicholson is, is actually portraying Kubrick in the film, um, an artist who has been, who's trying to finish a work of art, but he has to work for the, someone else in the movie. It's the managers of the hotel. In the real world, it was, of course, the government. Uh, and, and finish his work of art, and he's being driven nuts by it. And that's the plot. And Wendy, his wife, invades the room trying to find out what this mysterious novel is that he's writing, Jack Nicholson is writing night after night, and won't let her in the room while he's working, just like Stanley wouldn't let his family or friends come on the set while he was working, because they would find out. And one night she sneaks in, and she looks, and every single word sentence in the book is the same sentence, which is all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, written over and over and over and over. And here's the thing. If you look and you see the font and the word all, you see that the L's, the small L's, are exactly like the letter or number uh, one. And so you can look at it and you say, A11 work and no Arrest makes Jack Kubrick a dull boy. A11 was NASA's, uh, uh, what they called Apollo 11. All through the movie, you see these references to Apollo 11. And, it's, and, and then as Wendy discovers this secret book, all of a sudden Jack Nicholson appears. And he begins saying things to her like, do you know what a contract means? Do you know what it, what it is to have to um, submit to an employer? Do you know what I have to do for us to survive? Um, berating her because she found his secret work and that if she lets it out, he's going to lose his job. And the whole thing is every time that he deviates from the Stephen King novel, and he deviates a lot, he is telling you his own personal biography of what he went through and the hell that he went through and how he wished he had never signed the deal with the devil. To make, to fake the moon landing footage. Yep. Fascinating. Yep. Fascinating. And of course you have the expose and diamonds are forever. I mean, that's very, very blatant, of course. Oh yeah, boy, that's a really great one. Yeah. There's all, there's all these movies with these exposés. I don't know why they do it. The theory is that there's some sort of a cult thing that they have to tell us what's going on or something. I don't know. 
maybe the insiders are just making fun of, uh, of us. Jay, if you wanted to give people a half a dozen thoughts about the moon landing that are most telling, you know, and revealing for them to think about, because, you know, we still have a lot of Americans who want to believe. I mean, they're just incredulous at the very suggestion that we did not go to the moon. And yet I say there's an overwhelming mountain of evidence uh, that we did not go. A lot of it is contained in the film we just watched, Conspiracy Theory, Did We Land on the Moon? And where you have explained how Stanley Kubrick used front screen projection to fake it, I'm running out of reasons why people would continue to believe it. Well, the number one reason is, of course, the work of Oleg Olenek um, from Kharkov University in the Ukraine, who's a physicist. And what he did was he took Apollo photographs and he applied the theory of parallax to them. I don't think we need any other theories to help us with this theory. And what, the, what, what parallax is, is that is um, the, uh, I'll explain this, it is how things that are, the further that something is away from you, the less it moves as you walk or run or drive perpendicular to it. So if you're driving in Colorado by the Rockies, and you're 100 miles away from the Rockies, the trees and rocks are going to run by your car really fast, but the Rockies are going to remain fairly stabilized in the background. Well, that, if using that scientifically, you can take two offset images or photographs of an area that are, say, separated by a couple feet, and you can use parallax to determine distances. So you're in the Rockies, you're 100 miles away from the Rocky Mountains, you take a picture of, of the Rocky Mountains, and then you move to your right a couple of feet and you take another picture. And then you take the two pictures and you combine them. And uh, you can do Photoshop techniques to combine these photographs, as Ole, Ole Nick does in his uh, essay on, uh, on, on parallax. And you can determine that the rock there in, you know, in front of you is about 200 yards away. The forest is about 400 yards away. Oh, and the mountains are about 100 miles away. And uh, so he applied that same technique, which is a verifiable technique. They use it to determine the distances of stars. They will take a picture of yeah. a star and, 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 and its inclination. Astronomical calculation. Yes, that's right. And then do it again in the in, in the in the uh, fall, and then they can determine the distance of the star. So this is all scientifically proven, folks. So anyway, laws of all he did, absolutely. What he did was he took two offset images, and you can see it. I'm sure Jim's has the link up. The offset images of the Apollo footage over and over, and he combines them in Photoshop. And he shows and proves, without know, any shadow of a doubt, that the mountains that are supposed to be 8 to 10 to 12, in some places 14 to 20 kilometers behind the astronauts are, in fact, about 150 yards at the most. So, um, and then he concludes, based on this, that, it, that whoever did it used a screen. And the most important part of this research is that he proves that that nagging line that's behind the astronauts in almost every single picture 
99% of the pictures, that nagging line is right where the point where the screen and the stage are, and he uses parallax to prove it. That's why his work is so important, and no one can argue with it. The arguments that I have read on the Internet are feeble, feeble, and, uh, uh, and we have to get this out because we now have a physicist who has backed up this point of view and proven the cinema behind it. Now, where Olenek fails is that he reaches the conclusion that they were using rear screen projection because he doesn't understand cinema technology like I do, um, and, but he was wrong. Well, that's the only thing he's wrong about. Yep. He's right. They did use a, pro a projection, but it was front screen, not rear screen. This is why everyone needs to read the article, Faking the Moon Landings, the Parallax Experiments, uh, which I published so recently with Jay on Veterans Today. Let, let's talk about a, a Warner von Braun, uh, Jay, because he was you know, regarded as the father of space technology. When he was brought into the American government at the end of World War II, he had very ambitious plans. He designed or described what it would take in the terms of the size or dimensions of a spacecraft to go to the moon. He thought we'd need to have a fleet of three of them, and they would be larger than the Empire State Building. Uh, and he's exactly right. <laughs> he, he wasn't kidding. It would take that much thrust to break through to get that far. And, uh, you know, we haven't never gone since Apollo 17. We never had their own admission. We haven't gone any higher than 250 miles. I know, I know. Winston Wu makes the point that this seems to be the only area of technology that seems to have regressed, you know, that we reached this high plateau with the Apollo landings, and ever since we've not been able to go anywhere. In fact, even now you get, a, you get a NASA admitting that the, the Van Allen uh, radiation belt is a hazard to space research. I mean, they don't seem to realize they're contradicting the official position, the official government account of our, our space program. Well, I mean, the immediate uh, response to the discovery of a third Van Allen belt a few years ago is, uh, well, uh, golly gee, guys, uh, the astronauts had Geiger counters on board. How come they didn't notice the uptick? The third one? It's like, God. Here's a good one. Here's a good one. As you well know, uh, Werner von Braun led an expedition to the Antarctic which actually was to collect moon rocks, which had been dislodged from the surface of the moon by the impact of asteroids and then caught in Earth's gravitational field so that they could actually produce bona fide moon rocks to the public to justify the, the trips having been taken, except the way they obtained the moon rocks wasn't by human transport back to the, from the moon. Yeah, and then they gave uh, moon rocks to, like, the... Uh, uh, president of Denmark and a whole bunch of others and later said, oh, never buy those weren't real. <laughs> yeah, one was a piece of petrified wood, would you believe, Jay? Really outrageous. Oh, they don't even care. I mean, that's we're at the point that they don't care what they do. I'll tell you what they did, though. Somewhere along the line, after Apollo, and I don't know where. I'm doing a tracking line, but I haven't found it yet. Somewhere after Apollo, and it might be the Manson murders, I'm not sure, they began to realize that if they could control us in a positive manner, like Apollo, i.e. make us think that we are the greatest nation on Earth and we can do what nobody can do, if they could control us in a positive manner, 
then maybe it was also possible to control us in a negative manner, and they began really starting to pull stop at that point. And I, I, at this point, I don't know what's real and what isn't. Jay, I'm so delighted to have you here. If you wanted people to look at one of your works, what would you recommend? Kubrick's Odyssey? Yep, Kubrick's Odyssey number one has all the goods on The Shining. And, and of course, you have an official website. It's just you can track it by using the name, the official website for Jay Wiedner, W-E-I-D-N-E-R. Jay, I can't thank you enough for being here. Hey, thanks, Jim. Any this Jim I appreciate it. This is Jim Fetzer, your host. Thank you, my special guest today, Jay Wiedner, for being here, and all of you for listening. <laughs> Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal, where my very special guest today is uh, Bart Sabrell, who is a student of the alleged lunar landings. He's produced a fascinating film entitled A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon. He is uh, from Nashville, a Tennessee-based filmmaker, an investigative journalist, a critic of the U.S. space program, and proponent of the theory that the six Apollo lunar landing missions between 1969 and 1972 were hoaxes perpetrated by the American government. Mark, it's a real pleasure to have you as my guest on The Real Deal. Wow, gee, what a great name, The Real Deal. We'll try to get to it. <laughs> well, uh, presumably that's what you've been after, so uh, this uh, seems to fit. I hope so. Tell me, to begin with, how'd you get interested in this topic? Well, you know... Um, uh, I hate for my biblical point of view here, but um, as much of a sinner as I am, I try to do what's right with all my ability, sometimes uh, failing. Uh, the New Testament, you know, was written largely in part by Paul. And Paul went from uh, killing Christians to being their leader. And I went from being the biggest fan of the moon mission to being the biggest critic. I started out, my dad was in the Air Force. I grew up around aircraft and space museums and uh, had on my bedroom wall probably 20 pictures, 9 by 12 color prints of Apollo 11 that I saw every day, 365 days a year, from about the age of 8 to 14. So 365 days a year for six years, every day, multiple times a day, I saw 20 pictures of the first moon mission. And I was the biggest fan, right? Yeah. So in a way, I would like to say that you know, when the killer of Christians becomes their leader, and when the biggest fan of the moon missions becomes the biggest critic, that in and of itself should say something. <laughs> you underwent a conversion experience. Correct. So and the, what, on, the road, when I was, on the road to Cape Canaveral. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a bright light shining around me. <laughs> uh, and what, so what, when I'm, what, 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 what I was... 
what first tipped you off, Bart, that something was wrong? Well, when I was 14, I was watching this uh, television program, and uh, there was a gentleman on it who worked for NASA for about, I guess, six and a half, seven years during the time of the Apollo rocket. And uh, he was a technical manual editor. So the thing was so departmentalized, he had so many contractors, 12 or more, around the country working on various parts of the mission. So really no one saw the whole picture except this handful of people at the top. And this person, because he edited for grammar all of the manuals and the memos. So we actually saw in his mind the overview of the entire project pretty only much like the administrator of NASA himself. And he got a hold of one memo that said the odds of reaching the moon on the first attempt uh, without killing anybody was about one in 10,000. But people have to realize that in the 1960s, at that point in history of aviation, uh, probably, gosh, a couple of million aircraft had been built since, you know, the 1900s. World War II and all that, hundreds of thousands of aircraft and commercial aircraft. So a couple of million aircraft, probably more, had been built at that point in history in the 1960s. And their latest aircraft during the same time Apollo was being developed was the 747. Now, the 747 only went about six miles, seven miles up into the air. And it took a year longer to develop than a rocket going to another planet for the very first time. So you had two million aircraft being built, and the latest and greatest to develop the two million and one took a year longer than building a rocket to go to another world for the first time that worked flawlessly. And so when I saw him on television as a 14-year-old, I fortunately, it caught me as an open-minded individual, you know. And I went back to my bedroom wall, looked at some of the pictures, and sure enough, it was as if my eyes were wide shut all of this time looking at them. I saw them, but I really didn't see. You can even say the Bible says people who have ears, but they do not hear People who have eyes, they do not see. People have minds, they do not perceive. And so I started looking at the pictures again and looking at them with new eyes. And sure enough, it looked like there was a certain point in the photographs in which the foreground kind of became fuzzy and out of focus and even a different color straight across left to right, indicating a, a fake background. That's what I saw as a 14-year-old. Then about 10 years went by, I became a professional filmmaker. And, of course, my job as a professional filmmaker is to make fake scenes look real, right? And oddly enough, serendipitously enough, I was editing some videos for the gentleman who had produced the TV show I had seen 10 years earlier about the moon landing being fake. And I'm like, well, who was that guy on your show who worked for NASA? He put me in touch with him, and uh, I called him up. And even at the time, I thought, you know, if we didn't go to the moon, how do I know this is the real guy? Maybe the real guy was killed, and this is some guy pretending to be him to spill anybody who comes to him, you know, with any juicy, you know, leaks. But I called him up, and after about one minute, he was so personable. I thought, no, this is the real guy. Even called him from a payphone across the street, just in case. And well, he suggested that I do a film about the moon landing being fake. So I took about six months off, pulled, uh, pulled a, a little bit of salary out of savings, and paid myself a salary for six months and just did research. I found out that two of the three astronauts never give interviews. The administrator of NASA 
resigned days before the first mission. The Soviets had launched the first satellite, the first animal, the first man, the first woman, the first spacewalk, the first career three. For every 100 hours we spent in space, they spent 500 hours. They were much more advanced, and they never left Earth orbit. And Nixon was president, and the Vietnam War, and the goal of Kennedy to go to the moon before the end of the decade, which he made not as a scientist, but as a visionary, right? And so I, at that time, estimated that there was probably at least a one out of four chance that the moon landings were fake. And ever since I was a kid, I liked puzzles. I even draw mazes myself. And I can draw pretty elaborate mazes, poster-sized mazes. I just like puzzles. And it's kind of what this is, you know, whether we went to the moon or not, it's kind of a puzzle. And I also have a character that's kind of relentless, you know. I, I, uh, hard to quit, never say die, always away type of philosophy. Knowing that about myself, uh, that I like puzzles and I'm relentless, and realizing there was a one out of four chance we didn't go to the moon, this was back probably in about 1991. I originally turned down the project to do a documentary about it because I thought, you know, I'm a liar. Everybody's a liar. If they didn't go to the moon and if I start turning over these rocks, it could be dangerous if they didn't go, right? So why should I risk my life for someone else's folly? So I turned down the project. About five years went by, and I started reading the Bible. And I realized that everyone's mortal anyway, right? And that, you know, the the simplicity of the Bible is really eloquent. And Einstein thought the same way, that everything is really very simple. And the Bible says it's a struggle, battle, between light and darkness, between truth and lies. You know, the first sin that entered the world, you could say the first sin of man was disobedience, some believe pride, But the first sin, period, wasn't of man. It was of the devil, which was a lie. And seeing how mankind would scientifically basically uh, say that putting a man on another planet, another world, the moon, is the greatest technological achievement, I think it would have to be if it were true, right? The fact that that would in and of itself be a lie, or potentially a lie, to me, just somehow stirred my spirit and said, you know, there's something about this that doesn't smell right. Two of the three astronauts don't give interviews. The administrator of NASA resigned days before the first mission. And all the, the shadows that should be parallel, they intersect sunlight, you know. I, I changed my mind five years later and I decided to do the film. Well, about three and a half years into this five-year project. You know, it's only a 47-minute film. It's called The Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon, and you can view it on YouTube. And um, three and a half years into this project, I mean, I spent 4,000 hours editing the movie. How many hours? 4,000 hours. 4,000 hours. So that's 40 hours a week for two years. I spent two years editing a 47-minute movie. Then research, and then shooting a little bit, and then the narration and all this stuff. And I, I, I was doing it under the theory it might be true. In two, uh, three and a half years into the project, uh, we were given 
um, never before seen footage. It's part of the missing tapes, which some of your listeners may have heard of. And, um, you know, we have unedited footage of them faking part of the moon mission right in front of your eyes. See, they, they only aired 10 seconds of this unedited footage. And had I only seen the best 10 seconds that they showed everybody else, I doubt if I would ever figure it out. It looks really good. It's a special effect shot, as we can go into a little bit later. But basically, they're faking a shot of being halfway to the moon. And not only do we have the 10 seconds that they aired, everybody, we have the hour of them doing the shot over and over again, about 30 times, faking a shot right in front of your eyes. Now, the shot has been licensed five times by the BBC, NBC, Discovery Channel, and a couple of others. And it's never been broadcast. It's always been canceled days before it's to be broadcast. I even did the Geraldo show two weeks ago, and I hand-delivered a DVD to Geraldo in New York, and he asked me on the show, what's the greatest evidence and he didn't even have it queued up, ready to show. He showed me being hit by one astronaut and kicked in the butt by another astronaut. But he asked for the key evidence, and I gave it to him, and he didn't show it. <laughs> you know, this, this footage proves, proves in my mind, I would bet my life on it, that the moon landings are fake. So now, three and a half years into this project, and I'm doing it in theory that it was fake. You know, it, it's not a theory in my mind. I mean, it's a fact. They didn't go. I mean, you, you, you know, I, I spent five years making a 47-minute movie. I encourage your listeners to go to, you know, uh, YouTube and watch a funny thing happened on the way to the moon in five parts or buy the higher-quality DVD from moonmovie.com. You've seen it. There it is. That's my background on this story. <laughs> Where do we go from here? Well, let me just say a word or two about, the, uh, about your documentary, which I reviewed again today after having not watched it for several years. But I, I love the film, and of course the crucial scene you're talking about is where the astronauts claim that they have their camera right up to the window of a, of a, of a, of a space vehicle and taking footage of Earth. And, uh, you know, Earth looks, you know, pretty round. It looks cloudy and all that. Uh, but then the camera backs up and lights come on. And, in fact, the camera was way back and was shooting through a porthole in the space vehicle to create the false impression that what you were seeing was the whole of the Earth when it was simply a circular portion of the Earth being shot through the portal. And, in fact, one of the other telling signs is that, you know, while the camera, the, the lens is supposed to be right up to the, to the window, an arm uh, shows up in the footage, which, of course, reveals that, in fact, there is considerable space between the window and the camera. It, it's, it's quite a sensational development, Bart, and you got it purely by accident? Well, I can't say that, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but that's what I thought initially. That's yeah. what I thought initially, and then another party informed me that it, that it may not have been an accident. Well, that's, that's, that's very good because, uh, you know, we have other indications that there may be those who are involved in this or who, who want to give the game away in, in, in ways we'll talk about, including the photographs, because there's this stunning uh, assemblage of photographs that were uh, uh, purportedly taken on the moon where uh, one student, Jack White, whom I know very well, he's a legendary photo analyst in relation to the assassination of JFK, has discovered by visiting all the NASA websites 
that they took 5,771 photos in 4,834 minutes. In other words, an exposure every 50 seconds. All of, all of these uh, photographs are perfectly focused. They're absolutely clear, and yet they were taken with cameras that ostensibly were mounted on the outside of these so-called spacesuits by men who had to adjust the aperture and the time uh, interval and so forth using their, their gloved hands, which he suggests, and I cannot disagree with him, was a physical impossibility. And when you subtract the amount of time that was required for them to perform all of their other uh, activities, the situation becomes even more damning. So that even if you just look at the number of uh, photographs taken, I mean, if you subtract the amount of time for Apollo 11, for example, that they would have had to spend in other activities, you got a photo every 15 seconds, Apollo 12 every 27 seconds, Apollo 14 every 62 seconds, Apollo 15 every 44 seconds, Apollo 16 every 29 seconds, Apollo 17 every 26 seconds. And you just think of the absurdity of that, Bart. I mean, you've got to you know, figure out what you're going to photograph. You've got to get it in the right position to take the photograph. You can't be taking photographs at this rate and speed and have any expectation that they're going to come out and, and have any significance at all. Well, first of all, Jim, uh, they lied about going to the moon in the first place. So any, any quote, fact that they say about it, can't be trusted necessarily. Of course, of course. Uh, n number one, this, this number of pictures is, an, is, I believe, a gross exaggeration. I asked NASA to, re to give me every single photograph of every uh, astronaut on the surface of the moon just during Apollo 11. We have Apollo 11. It's the very first time they go to the moon, right? And I just want only want pictures on the surface where an astronaut appears in the picture. And there, there were fewer than 20 pictures, fewer than 20 pictures of an astronaut on the surface of the moon during Apollo 11. And of still pictures, still pictures, you know, with a camera, high-resolution camera like you're traveling with or whatever, of still pictures of the first man to walk on the moon. Guess how many pictures there are? Uh, one or two. There's none. <laughs> the only picture of Neil Armstrong, it's the TV images, which may not be him, and one from a 16-millimeter motion picture camera mounted allegedly on the side of the lunar module. But as far as a still picture, a still picture of Neil Armstrong on the surface of the moon, there's not one. That's, that's a really unusual fact about it. Now, you would think the first man on the moon probably want a picture of it, right? And their excuse is that uh, Neil Armstrong was taking the pictures, and that's why he doesn't appear in any of them. Well, if there's 500-degree temperature difference between light and shadow, and there's radiation, and there's micrometeorites, and you might drop the camera, you know, and, and open the thing, I might want to have a backup camera, possibly. You know, the fact is the guy did not want any liability, and that's why he very seldom gives any interviews on the subject because he doesn't want to lie. You know, when you talk about this footage, which I don't know, do you have video playback on your website or what? Uh, or iPod or whatever it is? Yeah, yeah I, got a, I got a Mac. Yeah, well, then, you know, you can play back the video clip. But basically what the footage that we uncovered, if your listeners or if you chew it up, you know, it's like a little blue tennis ball-sized earth with the blackness around it. 
NASA to prove that they are halfway to the moon two days into the flight. They allegedly have a window facing the Earth, and they put the lens of the camera to the window's glass, and they shoot the tiny floating in space. In fact, it's back away from the window. They're in Earth orbit. They darken the lights, and it's a circular window that they're shooting with part of the Earth outside of it, et cetera. But it basically is, and it takes a little while. I mean, I'm in the business, and I had to watch it about three or four times to understand what it is because it's a special effect shot, even though we have the animated conversion. What it is is they're faking a shot of being halfway to the moon. Now, if, if you're faking a shot of being halfway to the moon, you can't go halfway, right? Because you're faking it, right? So if you're faking being halfway to the moon, it means you can't go halfway, and they all have identical equipment. So if you've got a 2001 Volkswagen Bug, and it can't go 500 miles an hour, then my 2001 Bug can't go 500 miles an hour either. But because they had all identical equipment, if the first mission's equipment cannot leave Earth orbit as the tape proves by their faking of leaving Earth orbit, then we know they never went. And the part that you're talking about, the dust, you know, underneath it and things like that, uh, all of these anomalies were, were, um, were kind of taken care of. The main thing is that once people had in their mind an emotional impression that we really went to the moon, it was really hard to talk their hearts out of it. In fact, I believe it was actually easier to fake the subsequent moon landings after people accepted that the first one was real. I mean, let's say, Jim, I say, hey, let's go to this great restaurant. It's the best restaurant in town. You get your lobster and filet mignon, and right before you take a bite, this cockroach crawls across your steak. Yeah. Now, if I tell you a month later, let's go back to that restaurant, are you interested? <laughs> Right? That image is burned into your mind. It's hard to get out of there. And a positive image can be burned, too. You, you emotionally want to believe that we went to the moon, right? You have no reason to doubt it, to tell you the truth. You really have no reason to doubt it. Who would think that the government would be so audacious to lie through their teeth, even though there was no independent press coverage and only three eyewitnesses, right? And you want to believe it's your team. You want them to win. So if they win on camera, you know, you're cheering in your heart. Your heart burns an impression in your own heart, you see? And then once you've accepted they go to the moon in your heart, it's really hard to talk yourself out of it. I don't know if O.J. did it or not, but his own attorney alluded that he did after the fact. But if you try to tell his kids that Daddy killed Mommy, you see, they, they can't accept it. Their 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 prideful emotional ties to their beloved inhibit them from seeing the truth. See, as you know, if we really went to the moon, anyone who says otherwise is an idiot. So why, if you type in moon hoax on Google, moon hoax, you actually see nine out of ten websites to defend that we really went to the moon. It's actually the opposite of the moon hoax. If you type in moon hoax, you don't see about the moon hoax. You see about how the moon host is not real, how we really went. If we really went to the moon, anyone who says otherwise is an idiot. So why are there so many thousands of hours of websites spent to refute a bunch of idiots? You see, O.J. Simpson's lawyers had a reason for everything, too. My film has been taken apart. There's a reason for this, a reason for this, a reason for this. O.J. Simpson's lawyers had a reason why they were just blood in her car, too. But that doesn't make it true. And that's what we're up against. You know, it's pretty stiff competition against the human art. Well, I, I, I understand completely, Bart. I'm not sure 
you understood the point I was making about Jack White's research. I mean, this is a guy who's very thorough, very meticulous. He spent his whole life dealing with uh, photographs and composition uh, professionally. He, he tried to get NASA to tell him how many photos were taken on the surface of the moon, and NASA wouldn't tell him. So he spent two days searching documents and text, but the Lunar Surface Journal, one of the sites, listed every photo with its file number. So he undertook an actual count of every photo taken by astronauts during extravehicular activity, EVA, which was the time spent on the surface outside of the, the LEM, the lunar you know, module. And here's his actual count. He's counting now on Lunar Surface Journal. Apollo 11, 121, Apollo 12, 504, Apollo 14, 374, Apollo 15, 1,021, Apollo 16, 1,765, Apollo 17, 1,986. And when you add that up, you get that number, 5,771. Now, this is a preposterous number, Bart. And what Jack has done is to show that the, the government's own number of photos taken refutes the idea that we actually meant to went to the moon all by itself because you couldn't possibly take all those photographs in that time. And that's over and apart from all the studies he's done about individual photographs and all the discrepancies of shadows crossing and all this other stuff, which you can find at his website if you just, uh, if you just introduce into Google Jack White's Apollo Studies. You'll get a huge index of all of his research there. But, but because you know, I have you on, because I have you on, Bart, and not Jack, of course, I want to pursue, you know, the issues of greatest interest to you. But I think NASA is trying to be cagey because now that Jack has exposed the charade just in terms of numbers of photographs, they're obviously going to try to bury it. Well, I remember going to his site when someone first brought it to my attention years ago, and I remember being very impressed with it. Um, you, you know, to tell you the truth, it's especially with the 40th anniversary coming by, it's been quite exhausting, you know, doing all this. I've been working on this for 10 years, doing two films. It's really exhausting. And um, a lot of people advise me just to give it up, you know, whatever. To me, it's a moral issue that it's about right and wrong. Yeah. I don't, it's not that I think anyone should be prosecuted for it. I don't. I think everyone should be given amnesty. If Kennedy's assassin comes forward, I think he should be given amnesty. Because the truth is more important than individual prosecution. Bart, that's a great uh, point. That's a great point to make in the right time for us to take our first break. This is Jim Fetzer with my very special guest today, Bart Sabral, who produced A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon. We'll be right back. <laughs> Thank you. 
Stephen Bush admits that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11. Our own FBI acknowledged it has no hard evidence that ties Osama bin Laden to 9-11. But if Saddam had nothing to do with 9-11, and if Osama had nothing to do with 9-11, then who did it? Who did it? The 9-11 conspiracy provides the answer. Discover the big picture. Learn what we know now. Find out what it means. Eleven experts contribute to exposing the truth as the anatomy of an atrocity. Edited by James H. Fetzer. Buy it now if you have the courage to face the truth. Just don't think you're going to like it. The 9-11 Conspiracy provides the answer. I'm sorry? 
he wasn't very cooperative. Well, let me just say for the record that that was my fault. The whole incident was my fault. Um, you know, I didn't wake up that day saying, I can't wait to call Buzz a liar, a coward, and a thief. And he didn't wake up that day saying, I can't wait to punch Bart. What happened was, is I'd been to Japan a couple of times, and the Japanese are very technologically proficient, and they know we didn't go to the moon. And so they have put a lot of money into writing a book about it and films about it and interviewed me and they flew me over there twice. They had arranged an interview with Buzz Aldrin, if you will, an ambush interview where they paid him $2,000 for one hour. So he's making $2,000 an hour to talk about something he didn't do. And they had me there with, I had my own crew, so I could film it separately. Uh, film his reaction to me breaking in on the interview, which was all planned, to confront him on, you know, whether we went to the moon or not. Uh, it was an ambush, ambush interview. It was planned that way. Uh, you know, whether or not a guilty party is deserving of an ambush interview, that's up to, you know, you can decide. And he got turned up, you know, he just got paid two grand for doing something he didn't do. I felt he was a liar, felt he was a thief for taking that money. I think he was a coward for being afraid to tell the truth. When I said that to him, he punched me in the face. But the way I looked at it is, uh, like I said earlier on, and it may be hard to believe, but I try to be a Christian. It's really hard, you know, in this, in this corrupt world. And the minister of mine said, you know, if you were arguing with your wife, and you said something like, oh, that's just the way you did it with your last husband, and she threw a plate at you. Whose fault would it be that she threw a plate at you? <laughs> you see, saying that remark, you know, was crossing the line. Yeah, they should be in control of their own body and whatever, but the fact is, had I not said you're a coward, a liar, and a thief, he wouldn't have punched me. So it's my fault that that happened. Well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you're asking him to swear that he had been involved in this in a legitimate way was irresponsible at all. But I do think it's entirely possible, given the number of astronauts, I think there must be 11-odd deaths associated with the program, that they have been intimidated by, you know, the, the, the NASA is an intelligence agency of the United States. Bart, I'm sure you appreciate that, but most Americans don't realize that NASA isn't some independent standalone entity, but it's uh, like an extension of the National Security Agency, the CIA, and so forth, and the techniques they're going to use to control their assets uh, are liable to be harsh. And I would not be surprised personally if these guys had been told that if they ever blew the whistle or gave the game away, that their wives and their children could be taken out. Well, that's pretty advanced thinking. And I happen to agree with you, even though it may be advanced. But the fact is, uh, my research of Neil Armstrong's character, he was a very, very outgoing person. You know, he played the piano. He was always the life of the party at all bars and wherever he hung out. He was the life of the party. And uh, I think he was humble, and I think he was honest. And... On January 27, 1967, the crew that was supposed to be the first crew to go to the moon, you see, that was the Apollo 1 crew. Remember, first on the moon, Apollo 1? And Gus Grissom had the best rapport with the media in the United States, which, of course, is very important to the executive branch, right? 
Yes. Now, the reason why he had a great rapport with the uh, press and the public was because of his um, mercury capsule uh, splashing down in the Pacific, I believe, and the impact triggered the explosive bolts on the door, which were for emergencies use only, right? And the impact triggered them. So when the thing hit, you know, the water at about, gosh, at least 60 miles an hour, probably more, it triggered the explosive bolts, and the thing's got to bobble underwater at least 20 feet, if not more. You know, the explosive bolts go off, and the door opens and starts flooding, right? Not the best circumstance to be in, right? In addition to this, the guy had in his pockets, he had about six rolls of nickels. You know, from the bank, rolls of nickels, yeah. right? Yeah. He had three in each pocket. And the reason he did this was because he had a son, Scott Gerson, who was in elementary school. And he loved kids, and he wanted to give them souvenirs. He wanted them to each have a nickel that had been in outer space. So he took six rolls of nickels, put them in his pocket, to give to his son, to give to all of his school children in third grade as a souvenir for the children. And when the explosive bolts went off on the impact and it filled up with water, and the mission was considered a fiasco, really. It was an embarrassment. You know, they had, they had to trudge him out of the water. It was kind of a, a failure, really. At the press conference, he admitted that he had these rolls of nickels in his pockets for the children. And when he started sinking to the bottom of the ocean with extra weight in his pockets, <laughs> you know, he had said, maybe that wasn't such a brilliant idea. And then some reporter asked him, were you afraid? And you know what he said? No. He said, of course I was afraid. <laughs> he admitted the truth. Yeah. The truth. Just like George Washington, the father of our country, who, when he wrote dispatches to Congress, right? And you want to, you've got to give Congress a pep rally during the Vietnam War and civil rights, you could say, the parody of. But instead, he said, you know, we're outnumbered four to one. Half my officers are incompetent. The other half are drunk. We have no shoes. We have no food. And it's winter. How are you guys doing? <laughs> you see, he told it the way it was. And America claims to be a Christian nation. Is that true? Right? Well, actually, right? actually not. But well, I mean, well, that's what statistically you go to an encyclopedia, which says the moon landings are real. And you go to an encyclopedia that says what percentage of America is Christian, and it says 90%. Well, that doesn't mean that the nation, in terms of its government and constitution, is Christian. You know, it's not a theocracy. That's, that's but that's point. what's claimed. So that's what's claimed. So publicly, officially, 90% of Americans are followers of Jesus, right? Now, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And we go back to the Bible again about lies and truth, darkness and light, you see. And Gus Grissom told the truth, you see. So because of his popularity, his popularity because of his humility, he was chosen to be the first man to go to the moon. Well, he was complaining of the chain of command, you see, that 
that they were, in his opinion, 10 years away from going to the moon in 1957, not two. In fact, I personally have interviewed his son, Scott Grissom, you know, the elementary school guy? Yes. Who, you know what he does now for a living? Scared to ask. He's a pilot. Really? Of 747. A commercial pilot, an airline pilot. Well, the most, the most difficult or intricate, intricate, you could say, maybe not difficult, the most intricate aircraft on the Earth. Yes. That's what his son does. I spoke with him for hours. I spoke with his widow, Betty Grissom, for hours. Now, Betty told me that a few weeks before he died in the fire on January 27, 1967, called the Apollo 1 fire, he had a, he was kind of a gardener, you know. He had a backyard, he had a lemon tree, a grapefruit tree, an orange tree, an apple tree, a pear tree, all in his backyard in Houston. And he picked a lemon the size of a grapefruit, huge lemon, and he put the coat hanger in the middle at the bottom, and he stuck the grapefruit in the middle of it, and he turned the hook around, and he hung it on the door, the top of the pyramid, top of the rocket to the moon. He hung it there. And without permission, he had an impromptu press conference. And he invited in the media, and he told them that he thinks the rocket to the moon was a lemon. You see, the astronaut corps around him was, you know, go Gus, but they all stood back several feet in case he was struck by lightning. You see, the first man before Neil Armstrong to walk on the moon was going to be Gus Grissom, and he he put a lemon. He put a lemon on the door of the moon rocket to go to the moon. Just a few weeks before he burned alive in it, he called the thing a lemon publicly, said it's a lemon. In fact, before he burned alive, they were having problems with the radio. It was a wired radio between two buildings, and they couldn't hear each other. You know what he said right before he died? He said, how are we going to get to the moon? if we can't talk between two buildings. Yeah. And according to the dead man's wife, Betty Grissom, and according to the dead man's son, Scott Grissom, according to their forensic evidence, of the spacecraft which the government has tried two times to destroy and disassemble, they know for certain in their mind, it's not my mind, this is in my opinion, my opinion is, the follow, is that the moon landings are fake, but the Apollo 1 fire, and that's their opinion, but it's their qualified opinion, and I trust their opinion. I mean, it's the dead man's wife and the dead man's son who piloted 747. Their opinion, that fire is set deliberately. Yeah. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? Yes, of course. I, now, I share that opinion. I mean, it was the, the capsule was filled with pure oxygen, and, and a spark somehow was ignited, and they were allowed to burn to death. Well, the, let me just say this for the record, or the semi-record. You know, a funny thing happened on the way to the moon, and astronauts got wild in the press conference, which you can all get at moonmovie.com. It cost a million dollars to make these movies, a million dollars. 
You know, I didn't have a million dollars. And I feel like I'm kind of like the John Adams of the Founding Father days. And there's a John Hancock out there who was just to remain anonymous, and you can't blame him for wanting to do that, but he put up a million dollars. And let me tell you, this individual who financed my movies, he's a board member of an aerospace company building rockets for NASA today. And he knows from an engineering point of view that the moon equipment couldn't possibly go to the moon in 1969. No way. It couldn't work today. You see. Now, the family of the Apollo 1 fire, they know that that was said deliberately. I know that the moon landings did not happen. You think the two events are related, you see. Now, I read a 500-page report about the Apollo 1 fire. You know how much it cost, the 500-page report? Should get out my calculator here. I'll be able to talk for a page here. <laughs> well, it cost $10,000. Let's do $10,000 divided by 500. Oh, that's not too bad. But anyway, uh, I, I, we spent, or he spent, the anonymous contributor, we bought the Apollo 1 fire report from a congressional archive. Actually, it's from the uh, the state, now that I think about it, from the state of the uh, Roger White and, and Chaffee. I think it's from the Chaffee estate. We paid $10,000 from the widow's estate to get, she had a personal copy of the Apollo 1 report. We paid ten grand for it. Okay? I, I read about a, and then I didn't read all of it, <laughs> 500 pages. I read every single word of every single page for 150 pages, and that was enough for me. You know what? Number one, they uh, found cyanide gas in the capsule. Okay? Number two, when they removed the astronauts' burned bodies, for your listeners, they had a fire, which was the accident, in quotes. Okay? They were buckled in. They had safety belts type of thing. They were buckled in. So when they removed their corpses, corpses were buckled in, right? So the corpses are buckled in, and cyanide gas is found among the residue, right? That's what I found out in 150 pages. That's why I didn't bother reading anymore. Now, Ron Braun, and this is something, if your listeners should, and if you've never heard of this, uh, if you need to go to... Uh, YouTube and look up Apollo Zero, spelled Z-E-R-O. And Apollo Zero is a film by the executive producer that has a lot of really good scientific data in it. And in it, they have an interview with a gentleman from the, um, I don't know what department, something like the FBI or something. Anyway, they say Von Braun was a war criminal. He was a war criminal. And had he not been involved in the new rockets and had he not lived, lived you know, two years longer, he would, have, he would have been, you know, probably executed. And you see, they claim that the fire uh, was the cause of their deaths, right? Well, if you smell smoke or you see a flame, what's the very first thing you're going to do? You see, you're going to, you're going to unbuckle your safety belt, right? 
Yeah, that's the first thing you're going to do to get the heck out of there. So the fact that they were buckled in when they were dead means they were dead before the fire. And that's where the cyanide gets before. And here's the third part. We have a dip on, on the um, telemetry data. We have a dip in the electrical power right before the fire. Someone had alligator clamp, some sort of cyanide thing in there, and they triggered it before the fire. You see, and that's why there's a dip in the power. The cyanide gas killed them. Then they ignited the fire. The fire was actually to get rid of the forensic evidence of the cause of the homicide, which was cyanide gas. Because if they used the fire to kill them, one of them may have gotten out. You know what I mean? Yes. You see? And so they killed them before the fire, and they used the fire to get rid of the forensic evidence. You see? Yes. Now, as you said, threatening your life and family, right, of the future folks, now you have the next crew, the backup crew, Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, the owner coming in, and you say to Neil Armstrong, you know, we need you to fake the moon landing. Well, the guy, the guy flies uh, experimental aircraft. I personally cannot think of a more dangerous job on the planet than flying an airplane that has never been flown before. That's pretty dangerous, I think. That's what the guy does for a living. He's a test pilot, right? We have footage of him flying the lunar module six weeks before the moon landing, and you know he ejects one second plus one-thirtieth of a second. So he ejects one second plus one-thirtieth of a second before the thing crashes. The guy's really good. He's a really good pilot. And remember, he was the he was the life of the party, right? Well, if you threaten the guy's life, you know, to take the moon landings, what does the guy do? I mean, he's flying experimental aircraft, threatening his life doesn't really mean a whole lot to him, does it? You see, that's why you got to turn the heat up. And that's the only thing I can think of. You know, exactly what you said, Jim, that he that he threatened the life of his children. And in fact, in the film Capricorn One based on Bill Casey's book, which is based on the interview that I saw. You know, that's, that's what they did. And they had the Apollo 1 fire to back them up. They said, we killed those guys. You want to be next? You see what I'm saying? Well, I think, I think, and, I think that's right, Bart. And Capricorn 1 is a completely brilliant expose of how faking a, a, a trip like this to the moon, or in that case to Mars, could be done on a stage, in a set, out in the desert, in that instance. Well, you know, it's funny how life can take dark and vice versa. You know, it's so odd. Have you ever seen the film uh, All the Jazz? Uh, Roy Schneider? Roy Schneider, that's right. Basically, Bob Fosse, who was the director, hired Roy Schneider to play himself, and it was an autobiography. Well, in the film... The guy has a heart attack outside the hotel across from the Broadway play that he's directing, right? So like 10 years later, 10 years later, the director of the movie, who's autobiographical, has a heart attack outside of the hotel across from the Broadway play he's directing. And in Capricorn 1, you have Elliot Gould, right, which I hate to say is me, and he works for an NBC affiliate, right? He's fired for working on the story, right? Yeah. I worked for an NBC affiliate. NBC affiliate. And I was fired for working on the story. Really? So it's so, 
show amazingly, ironically poetic. It's bizarre. And here we are. You know, the fact is that the truth will come out in the future. And the astronaut's reputation, you know, will be decided by people after they're dead unless they come forward now and then they can contribute to how it's decided. I'm sure you'll know the details of this, but one of the articles I was reading suggested that in a, a press conference, I think Neil Armstrong was asked how it felt to step on the moon for the first time, and he rushed away sobbing and in tears uh, and never answered the question. And it, the, the interpretation, of course, was that this was a traumatic experience because, of course, the whole thing was a fraud, and he couldn't control his emotions. Well, you know, the great mind is sometimes unreliable. You know, I've been t- uh, punched by Buzz Aldrin and someone at Channel uh, 4 when I knew where I worked. They said, uh, I punched John Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> so I heard that story personally attributed to Buzz Aldrin. But in any particular case, two of the three guys did not give interviews. You know, not only, I mean, I'm really pleased with the funny thing happened on the way to the moon. You know, again, you can watch it at YouTube in five parts or go to moonmovie.com. The second film, Astronauts Gone Wild, is nothing that special artistically. However, it is a very good record to get the astronauts' reaction, you know, to being confronted with the fact that they didn't walk on the moon. And it's really, really interesting. You know, people watch that movie and they're either like, hooting and hollering, or they're like, got a knot in their stomach. I mean, if you can imagine me approaching Neil Armstrong with a Bible and $5,000, offering him $1,000 a second to say, I swear to God, I walked on the moon, yeah. him shaking like a leaf and refusing to do it. Yeah. You know, it's, artistically, there's nothing that special at all about after I found wild, but historically, for the record, it's very interesting. Because they're, it's just down and dirty. There they are. I mean, you, talk, you talked about the Apollo 10 mission, which also never left her orbit. Because in the window shot, if you uh, get the uh, unedited version, which is a monkey business on moonmovie.com, you see that they refer to this is the same way Tim did it. Remember the window shot? Yeah. Part of that unedited footage, they, we have them saying this is the way Tim did it. So any time they claimed to have orbited the moon, they did not. Apollo 13, Apollo 10, they did not orbit the moon. They could not leave Earth orbit because we have them on tape saying that the fake shot is the same way Apollo 10 did it. By the way, you were right. I've just discovered the passage from the piece I was reading, which is entitled Apollo Moon Hoax, Dr. David Grove's analysis. And the passage was several years after NASA claimed its first moon landing, Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon was asked at a banquet what it felt like to step onto the lunar surface. Aldrin staggered to his feet and left the room crying uncontrollably. It would not be the last time he did this. It strikes me that he's suffering from trying to live out a very big lie, says Renee, one of the experts and critics. Aldrin may also fear for his life, very consistent with what we've been discussing. Well, Aldrin... I really like the guy a lot. And um, when, and a funny thing happened on the way to the moon, which I really appreciate you watching right before the interview, 
for the second time because remember the part where Neil Armstrong said, maybe you could cue it up and you could play it, you know, for yeah. your listeners. Play that, you could play talk, you know what I mean? Yeah. Talk is very interesting. You could go into talk, you know? Yeah. About what that means. But basically, Neil Armstrong, the tears in his eyes, you know, the last time he spoke publicly, he said, perhaps someday you'll be able to remove one of the truth's protective layers. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I saw, I saw hope, hope in his eyes. Yeah. When I saw it on the, um, on the 35th anniversary, I mean, I was, to be quite honest, laying in bed, you know, doing emails and whatever, and I was flipping channels, and there on the 35th anniversary, I see Michael Collins, Neil Armstrong, and Buzz Aldrin speaking for the first time in 10 years with the White House behind them, the White House behind them, blind through their teeth about what they did. And Buzz Aldrin was normally the most talkative, but he talked the least. And that glimmer of hope that I saw in Neil Armstrong's eyes yes. was completely gone. He was like a soulless ghost, just like Collins. Collins had all the rocket went somewhere with, duh, you say you're going to fake the moon landing without launching a rocket? But when they asked Buzz, hey, I'm glad I'm here to be a satellite so I don't get punched, he looked down at his hands. Mark, we're going, to our, we're going to take our second break at this point. This is Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal, with my very special guest, Bart Sabrell, and we're talking about a funny thing that happened on the way to the moon.
saying with moral certainty and considerable scientific authority that the death of JFK was committed by a meticulously executed conspiracy which was obscured by an extensive cover-up. Cover Murder in Dealey Plaza, edited by James Metzer, goes to the heart of the JFK assassination. You'll read new and up-to-date information regarding the Secret Service, the Lincoln limousine, the medical evidence, the cover-up, altering the film, framing the patsy, and the silent historians. Also, 16 smoking guns, each one crushing the government's lone assassin scenario. A world-class chronology of November 22nd, 1963. Chapters by David W. Mantic, Gary Aguilar, Vincent Palomara, Douglas Weldon, Jack White, Ira David Wood III, James H. Fetzer, Doug Horn, and a classic essay by Bertrand Russell. The complete story in the pages of one single book, edited by James H. Fetzer. Read it now. Read it again. You'll use it as a reference. Murder in Dealey Plaza. Available at Amazon.com and major bookstores around the world. It's murder. Uh, that was done by Fox, 
uh, we went to them with the funny thing happened on the way to the moon, and they uh, liked it, but they did not want to air it in its entirety because they felt like they would have liability from the astronauts or whatever. My argument was the last thing the astronauts are going to do is sue us because otherwise, if they sued us, we'd have to go to court. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Prove the moon landing was real or not, in which case we could very likely win. So they're avoiding court like the plague. Sure. So they may threaten to sue us, but they would never in a million years sue us. Not in a million years. Um, and the film aired three times, you know, by popular demand. Now, even though they didn't air the secret footage, that was one of the shows that didn't air the secret footage, which I found very odd. You know, they never aired the number of one evidence. Remember, Hawaldo asked me a couple weeks ago, what's the number one evidence? And I have it on video, and I gave it to everybody, and it still has never been aired. I'm telling you, this number one evidence, evidence of them faking being happy to the moon, the women shot, has never been broadcast ever. Mark, how long, ago, how long ago did you have that exchange with Geraldo? Uh, it was a couple of weeks ago. Just a couple of weeks yeah. ago? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, those things can take a while to trickle up and down, you know, the the, the, the bureaucracy. Uh, so that wouldn't necessarily mean it weren't going to happen. I, I've been very disappointed in Geraldo since he went legit, though. You know, he used to have this wonderful program where he did all the uh, fringe issues, the stuff that was really crucial. You talked about O.J. Simpson. I blew a sabbatical over that trial. I was supposed to write a book, and I got sucked into the, the, the trial. I recorded it. I had this monster collection of my O.J. tapes. My, my, my wife and, and, and daughter would, would threaten me that if I, I misbehaved in their opinion that they'd tape over my O.J. tapes. <laughs> But, you know, he'd get these excellent people on there. I mean, the best attorneys like uh, Alan Dershowitz, for example, to, to, to comment on what was going on. It was utterly fascinating. Well, but since, I think he's gone, since he's gone legit, Mark, he's lost all that pizzazz. He doesn't do anything interesting anymore. Well, he might in the future. Um, I would say that uh, in regard to OJ, I mean, let me read. Um, let me read something here. I've been working on this my press release here, updating my press release. Let me just read this to you. Sure. It isn't that I. This is the last paragraph of a three-page press release. It isn't that I don't believe the ingenuity of human achievement. It is that my opponents don't believe in the depravity of mankind. In a world full of murder, rape, incest, mutilation, and genocide, this falsifying evidence is so hard to believe. The American public, scientists alike, are too afraid to admit that their admired country would do something so blatantly deceitful that it fogs their minds from perceiving reality. Like O.J. Simpson's children, no matter what evidence is presented to point to their beloved's crime, their closed-minded, emotional, prideful ties inhibit them from seeing the facts. 
they would rather glory in a victorious lie than humbly the tasteful truth. So, go ahead. You, you, you finish? Well, I was just saying that the exposing of this fraud yeah, yeah. is exactly what is needed to reform our government's making immorality. Well, you know, no, I, I agree. But I agree. The, cra- the crowning achievement of mankind is putting a man on the moon, right? Yeah. So the fact, that, the fact that it was a lie, you see, what we have before us, Jim, here is two possibilities, right? Number one, the possibility that the moon landing in 1969, you know, the space shuttle was killed 14 people going one one hundredth as far as the moon landings, right? That they really went to the moon in nineteen sixty nine. The other possibility is that the moon landings were falsified because of pride and greed and homicide and who knows what else. So you have before us two potential historic possibilities on your left that the moon landings are real. Landing on another planet, putting a flag Yahoo, yay, we did it, what a great thing. On the other side, the right side, is that the moon landings were fake because of pride and fear. Now, out of the two possible events, which is actually more profound, if true, landing a rocket on another planet, you know, close to us, albeit, but still, you know, quite a bit away, or the faking of such an event out of pride and fear. Well, I think, it had, more, I think it had more to do with greed, Bart. You're talking about, a, you know, billions of dollars involved here. It, it's very much like what's going on with the national health care program. I'm getting a public option is going to be overwhelmingly in the interests of the American people. It's going to require, force the uh, private companies to reform and moderate their rates and adopt more reasonable policies and do away with uh, pre-existing condition clauses and all that. It's going to it's going to reinvigorate the economy. It's going to take all this money we've been squandering on healthcare and, and, and divert the the expenditures to far more beneficial uh, practices and policies for the American people. It's going to bring things much into balance. It's going to cost businesses less money. But the HMOs and the insurance companies are going to lose their billions of dollars in profits. So they're trying to disrupt everything. They're sending these these uh, yellers and screamers to the public meetings to disrupt them. It's one of the most disgraceful exhibitions I have seen in the political arena since uh, the Bush people were down in Florida banging on the doors of the, 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 those who were trying to count the ballots in an effort to disrupt it all to make sure Bush would get in office. It's really embarrassing. Well... You know, if you rob a bank and you uh, get away with a million dollars, right, you don't get caught, what do you do next time? You go ahead and steal another million dollars, right? Yeah. Or two million, right? Yeah. And then if you get away with that, then you steal four million the next time, uh-huh. see? And the government has gotten away with making the moon landing. And so it has emboldened them, whoever they are, and it's probably just an elite minority. You know what I mean? I mean, the Nazi party was elected by only one-third of the people, right? You know? Oh. And this 
whoever it is, dark forces in the government, it's kind of hard to understand, but something going on. They did fake the moon landing. The moon landings were indeed fake. And until that is exposed, they're just going to keep doing it. They're going to keep robbing the bank. You see, that's why it's so important that this particular fraud come out, because this will waking up the people to say, hey, look, you know, this has gotten out of control. We need to take back, make it, as our founding fathers said, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Because it's not that now, not even close. Well, you know, psychologists have a, 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 a concept known as cognitive dissonance when persons are exposed to uh, information that threatens their core beliefs. They suppress it, they, they, they avoid it, they deny it. It's like a, a woman who is confronted with evidence that her daughter has been abused by her husband. She can't confront it, she suppresses it, she denies it. And, and I think in this case, you know, it so affects your, your confidence in your government as, as being a paternal entity that wants to benefit you and the other members of your society that it's very threatening to imagine that the government could be perpetrating a hoax like this. Well, something weird is going on. You know, people just have to realize that there are only three eyewitnesses, government employee eyewitnesses, to each new mission, and a TV picture completely controlled by the federal government. People don't remember this, but when the lunar module was allegedly descending to the lunar surface, they didn't show live pictures. They showed a simulation, which was like an Atari graphic. You know what I mean? Yes. They only showed live pictures when he was coming down the ladder. During the actual descent, there were no live pictures. Yeah. They could have put a video camera right out the door that had the entire two, three-hour descent live going from, from this to this. You know what I mean? From orbit to down, live, nonstop. Yes. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It easy, easy to do. Easy. Yeah. Yes. And very convincing. Very hard to fake that grand. You see what I'm saying? Well, the, the, people don't remember this. There were so many simulations going on on live TV and the very minimum of reality, and that convinced people in the people's hearts were burned. Across your plate, they were burned. And of course, burned with the reality that we went to the moon when the fact it was not true. And of course, NASA didn't give live feeds to the various television networks who had to broadcast off of NASA's own feed, which meant that the images being broadcast were that much more blurry and fuzzy, which appears to have been a way to insulate investigations based upon the, the videos and what they would have shown had they been in higher resolution. Well, that's true. Uh, the networks were confused. They didn't understand why they couldn't take a live feed. They were asked to, basically, they had, you know, projection TV. It's been around a little while. So imagine the projection TV quality of 1969. You project it on a big wall, then you have a TV camera shoot it, then you have another TV camera shoot that off a monitor, and then that's what goes to the air. It's like they were deliberately degrading the quality of the signal. It's my opinion that the still pictures were taken in a higher quality set and the TV images were taken in a lower quality set so they could do a 360 panorama view. You see in something that's set the size of an oil drum you see at the airport. And when Ron Hyard a couple of years ago wanted for his IMAX film without the Apollo missions, he thanks for the win. 
uh, wanted to transfer all this footage, you know, to four to five times the quality that they've ever before been seen. That's when they lost one to two tons of videotapes from the Hermetically Sealed National Archives. You see, watch, watch one Howard's film. I don't forget what it's called, Moon or Going to the Moon or whatever. More than 95% of it are reenactments. It's really amazing. Here we, here we have all this alleged footage of us going to the moon, and 95% of his film about going to the moon are reenactments. Well, Bart, you must, have, you must have been unsurprised in the extreme when NASA has just revealed that it lost its original Apollo 11 footage. Well, that was lost because Ron Howard was going to have it transferred to four to five times quality that it will first have been seen. And they decided that they weren't going to allow it to be projected on IMAX. Now, if we really went to the moon, they would have had high-resolution copies that had done 10 years before Ron asked for them, right? To, right. to prove how glorious it was, right? Yes. But, when, but when he asked for them to be transferred to 70 millimeter to be projected on, who knows how many feet, 30 by 50 feet or something, that's when they disappeared. You're talking about one the two tons of videotapes disappearing from the hermetically sealed National Archives building in Washington, D.C., where this declaration of independence is stored. And this, that's, this a, is, that's a little odd, don't you think? Yes, this is supposed to be some of our, our most historic footage. Right. You know, I, there's an interesting article that was published in Pravda in 2003 that I have archived on a, on a public issues website I maintain at assassinationscience.com in the upper left-hand corner. In the last paragraph of the Pravda article from 2003, observes that as the Grumman, the Northrop Grumman Corporation, the one that developed and constructed the moon robot, told an American magazine, all the negatives and records concerning the event were liquidated. It's rather strange because we know that America treats its achievements and, and history with, with great concern when they say here trepidation. But, you know, that's the idea. That all this, the, the Northrop Corporation destroyed all its records? Well, that is kind of interesting, actually, Jim. The, all of the documentation on all of the Apollo equipment, you know, like the inner module and what kind of uh, batteries they had or whatever, they say it's not classified. It's just not available. So they took all the technical specifications from all the moon rockets and they threw them into the fire. So you couldn't scientifically prove that the inner module couldn't power air conditioning against 250 degrees heat on the moon's surface for three days on car batteries. You can technically prove that because it took all of the technical specifications and, and threw it in the fire. But classified, it's not available. Pretty clever, huh? Yeah, very clever. I mentioned, <laughs> I mentioned conspiracy theory, didn't we land on the moon, which I like a lot because it has probably two dozen proofs uh, of a scientific character that the, the whole thing was a charade and was impossible, emphasizing, as you also do, for example, the radiation of the Van Allen belt and the flimsiness of the so-called spacesuits that were supposed to protect the astronauts. Yeah, it was a very good film. Another one I like, by the way, that we mentioned in passing is Moon Movie, 
which I think is quite, which is available online. You can also access it if you go to uh, assassinationscience.com, which I like especially because of its portrayal of uh, Warner von Braun, who you feature in your film, leading an expedition down to the Antarctic to collect moon rocks that had been knocked off of the surface of the moon when it was hit by small asteroids and, and captured by the Earth's gravitational field and then brought down in the vicinity of the uh, Antarctic so that they could actually collect honest-to-God bona fide moon rocks and then produce them as though they were what had been brought back from the moon. Well, that is kind of odd. I mean, here Von Braun is trying to build a rocket to another world one year ahead of the 747, you know, just to go six miles above the atmosphere. And he has time to take off to go to Antarctica to retrieve the lunar meteorite, which could be used to make moon rocks going to the moon. Also, he and the um, director of the uh, space program, the flight director, visited the space uh, film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, in England before they went to the moon. So here you have the rocket designer and the flight director, the two people most important in making a moon landing, if they were to fake it, visiting the set of a film not going to the moon. Well, months before Apollo yeah. 11. And I, and I want to ask you about that because uh, there's a new article you can you can uh, you can Google how Stanley Kubrick faked the Apollo moon landings, talking about how he may have been uh, recruited to to perpetrate the hoax because he had his vast experience having just produced in 1968 2001 a space odyssey. So that, uh, you know, uh, uh, my producer has raised the question he wanted to, me to ask you if you're familiar with this uh, theory and that, that Kubrick could have used a front projection system to fake the Apollo footage. Well, I don't know what system he used or didn't use, but I can say this. They couldn't go to the moon. And so they needed to hire somebody to falsify the results of it. So they had two choices. They could hire the general of the Pentagon of the uh, media department and get uh, great security but amateur results, or they could hire the best filmmaker on the planet and uh, get great immediate results of good photography and worry about security later. And I would say that's the one they had to choose. Um, you know, in Cooper's film, The Shining, the little red rum boy, you know, there's a scene where he has on a t-shirt, and what does the t-shirt say? You know, in the movie, it says Apollo 11. <laughs> and then Cooper's last film, Eyes Wide Shut, you know, he insisted that it opened on a particular day. Now, the... Studio didn't understand. It was supposed to open on a Friday, and he wanted to open on a Wednesday, you know, July 16th, and he didn't understand. He insisted that it open on July 16th, 1999, and they didn't understand why they didn't care. Why? Sure, we'll give it to you. It's the 30th anniversary of the moon landing. You know, nice. eyes wide shut. Very nice. And in Kubrick's, in Kubrick's film, 2001: A Space Odyssey. They went to the moon from a space station. And even in children's books from the late 1950s, the only way they went to the moon was from a space station. We have documentation 
from Bob Braun that says in order to go to the moon from the Earth directly, you'd have to build a rocket taller than the Empire State Building, weighing 10 times the amount of the Queen Mary, making an economic impossibility. He recanted on his math by 55,000% after Kennedy set the goal to go to the moon. And remember, he had Nazi war crimes hanging over his head, and he had a lot of incentive to play ball. That's, those are fascinating comments. Fascinating comments, Bart. You mentioned another film, Astronauts Gone Wild. Could you tell us a little about that one? Well, yeah. After, uh, <laughs> you know, it dawned on me for some reason, maybe because I read the Bible or something, why don't we just ask the astronauts to explore the Bible whether they walked on the moon or not, you know? Right. Oh, why not ask them? So uh, that's when we confronted um, Buzz Aldrin first. And the really interesting part of Astronauts Gone Wild is when I do an interview of him at a bookstore where he's doing some book hockey how he allegedly walked on the moon. And um, I cue up the footage, the window shot footage, you know, the secret footage that he shot. And he says, and this makes you a real famous person for having discovered this, but an ego you must have to want to propose stuff like this. He's saying I'm right. As far as he knew, the truth about the moon is being fake broke in that, work, in that room. And he said that I was right, although he accused me of having wrong motives. You see, that's on camera, and that's what's going to love. We have Alan Bean saying he didn't go through the Alan, Van Allen radiation belt. We have Eugene Cernan saying that, um, that the uh, landing on the lunar module was wild, while Alan Bean says it was very quiet. You know, either the engine descending to the moon was loud or quiet, right? One guy says it's loud, another guy says it's quiet. Another guy says he never went to the Van Allen radiation belt, another guy says he does. You know, it's not artistically that great of a film, but got some pretty good data in there, you know? I would say. One of the other oddities is, of course, their conflict over whether or not they could see stars from the surface of the moon. Mark? But yeah, um, that was one of the early arguments is why aren't there any stars in any of the pictures? And their answer is a good answer. They said that the exposure was almost always closed to, you know, account for the bright surface of the moon, which makes sense. Yeah. But why didn't they take any pictures of the stars by themselves with an exposure setting perfect for them? They said... Even in your own film, you have two of them saying they didn't see any stars, but I would think that would be one of the most spectacular aspects of being on the surface of the moon. Well, an interesting point to this, we didn't point it out in the film because we discovered it later. If you go back to that segment, Jim, and you look at it, you see Michael Collins chimes in and says, I don't remember seeing any. Right. He actually says we didn't see any. Yeah. Right. He wasn't there, was he? That's right. Isn't that interesting? That's damn That's right. right. I know it. You, I think you, you see, they had they had they had the same communal experience. Yeah. They were all three in that capsule for eight and a half days. So when Michael Collins said, "I don't remember seeing any," he's trying to remind them from the debriefing not to discuss the stars, right? Because they can't think the astrological position of the constellation. So he chimed in and said, "I don't remember seeing any." But he wasn't there. And if you get a printed transcript of the press conference, 
they changed it and they attribute that remark to Collins. But if you go to YouTube and look for Apollo Zero, Z-E-R-O, rather than the number, you'll see where they actually changed the transcript to say that Buzz Aldrin said, I don't remember seeing any. You see, Michael Collins misspoke. You've got it. You've got it right there. You've got it right there on your film. Everyone should see this film. A funny thing happened on the way to the moon. My special guest today, Bart Sabrell, talking about it. We'll be right back.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.